My name is Ben Almond. Using the perspective of my own life experiences and a passion for great leadership, I share observations and ideas for you to use on your development journey. This is The View, from where I sit. What would you think if I told you that a school system existed in which you were less likely to survive than a Canadian soldier in World War II? We've spent much of the last year exploring inclusion and hearing the stories of our friends and colleagues that have had life experiences that we can all learn from. Today, we're lucky enough to have a guest that was willing to talk about her experience and that of her family tied to one of the best hidden atrocities in world history. We in Canada fancy ourselves a diverse country, welcoming to all. This is partly true, but there are problems within our borders for both people immigrating and more acutely for those that were here first. Dating back to the 1870s, the Canadian government, in partnership with various church organizations, ran a program of schools in which Indigenous children would live on site and learn. The stated purpose was to assimilate Indians into European society. Duncan Campbell Scott, the Deputy Minister of Indian Affairs in Canada in 1920, was quoted, I want to get rid of the Indian problem. I do not think, as a matter of fact, that the country ought to continuously protect a class of people who are able to stand alone. Our objective is to continue until there is not a single Indian in Canada that has not been absorbed into the body politic, and there is no Indian question and no Indian department. Over 150,000 children went through the residential school system. 90 to 100% of them suffered severe physical, emotional, or sexual abuse and the mortality rate was between 40 and 60%, depending on the school you attended. You must be thinking this happened in another time, another generation, even another place altogether. Well, think again. The last school was closed in 1996. Yes, 1996. I share all this for context, as today's guest has an incredible story for a lot of reasons. On top of those reasons, she comes from a family that was directly impacted by the Canadian residential school system. She herself was taken to a residential school only to run away, quickly. Ruby Littlechild was generous enough to share about herself, her family, and how she got to where she is today. She offers some sage advice for all of us who are seeking to help. I hope you listen closely and enjoy. All right, welcome back to the podcast, everybody. I know it's been a little while. Really excited to have Ruby Littlechild here with us to have a bit of a dialogue and get to know her and hear about her journey, both personal and professional. So welcome, Ruby. And maybe the best way for people to start in this conversation is to hear a little bit more about you and for you to share a bit of your story. Thank you, Ben, for having me here. So my name is Ruby Littlechild. I am Plains Cree from Musquatchie, Alberta. My bloodline is Wandering Spirit. So in 1876, Big Bear, he was one of the treaty chiefs who agreed to Treaty Number no. 6 here in um, Western Canada. And he had a spiritual warrior and his name was Wandering Spirit. We're known as spiritual warriors. We're known for our ceremonies. We're known for our gifts. I grew up on a reserve called Musquatchie in the middle of Alberta. Had a transitory upbringing because my parents divorced. So I went back and forth between the city and the reserve. 
mostly raised by my dad, who shaped me a lot to be the person I am today because he was always empowering, always um, guiding me. I've been in Edmonton since I was 30 years old. I worked in Main Street most of my career, always um, being the bridge builder, always connecting the, the non-Indigenous people with the First Nations communities. Education has been my salvation, hence the, I have a bachelor's degree and two master's degrees. Again, it was just my way of survival. I had to armor myself with education to be able to secure employment in the city. In my younger years, when I was a rebellious teenager, I was sent to um, Blue Quills Residential School. I think I was about 14, 13, 14. At the time, I was living with my mother, and she sent me to the residential school. And I ran away because I had I had heard of the horror stories of residential school, and I felt the energy, and I stayed three nights there. But I ran away, so I left that, came back to the city, and I decided, you know, my mom was trying to send me to residential school, so I knew I had to... Um, change and get serious about my my future however I became a teen mom I got pregnant at 16 I I truly believe that's where I had to really grow up because I was a teen mom and so I didn't graduate high school I only went up to grade 10 because I got pregnant and I when I was 23 I um I applied into the University of Alberta and I didn't have um my grade 12 courses so I challenged um, the grade 12 departmentals to get into university, and I passed, and I got into the U of A. So began my educational journey, and I started valuing education, and I had to under, my parents, because they grew up in residential school and trauma and in the reserve, they didn't teach me ceremony or culture. They speak our language fluently, but they never taught me. My dad always made me go to school, and he he, al- he always put me in a non-Indigenous school. I remember missing the bus and him driving me to the nearby town near our reserve. And I said, why can't I go to the res school? He wanted me to get a mainstream education. I, that's one thing I grew up remembering. Grew up in a lot of trauma because of the res life, the reserve life. Because of residential schools, there's a lot of trauma, the abuse became the abusers. There's a lot of anger, lateral violence, the oppressed have become the oppressors in our communities. So residential schools taught self-hate and self-loathing. So in our communities, and this is from my personal perspective, in my community, they projected on each other. And that's where I say the oppressed become the oppressors. So I had to educate myself. I had to read books on oppression and um, patriarchy, power and politics and white privilege. I had, I've had to educate myself because in my reserve where I'm from, you're a woman and you're educated, you're ostracized, you're not valued, your education is not valued. You're forced, like I was, to leave the reserve and go make your own path. And I think that has to do with the residential school, what 
was taught there of how males rule. Because historically, in in our culture, before colonization and residential schools, we, we were equal. We had our, we were all valued. We were all important. Well, Ruby, I'm, I'm really curious. There have clearly been some level of oral history around the residential schools that led you to escape after three days, to decide that you needed to run away from yeah. the residential school and then to act on it that quickly. My dad went to residential school from kindergarten to grade 12. And he never spoke of what happened until um, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. They were going across Canada, um, hearing the the testimonies of survivors. And I, this was about, about, about 10 years ago. And I went with him to the Shaw Conference Center here in Edmonton when he went to do his testimony. And he never shared it with me, but I knew he had scars and issues just from his, from him being my dad and me watching him sometimes get angry, but not at me, but at the world. I remember he, uh, we were walking together and he, he hugged this one lady. And it was like a high school reunion for them, all these residential school survivors. Hmm. And they were all greeting and hugging. And he hugged this one lady and we kept walking and he said, she got pregnant in grade nine. And I said, from who? And he said, the priest. And I said, what happened to the baby? And he said, they killed it. And he shrugged his shoulders and he kept walking. And I, and I remember him walking ahead of me and me looking at him and thinking how desensitized he was. For me, it was like a, a, a wow moment because this is stuff he didn't, he didn't share with me growing up. But I knew he went to residential school. And like I knew the, the horror stories of residential school, which is why I ran away. Yeah, it's interesting for me, right? I feel like I have wow moments every day right now. You know, a year ago, the George Floyd murder happened and, you know, south of the border in particular, but really all around the world, we had a had an awakening around the challenges that black people were facing in various cultures. As I've been reflecting on the stories around residential schools that are coming to light, here in Canada, the conversations that have sort of been muted over our history or subdued and tucked away in a corner so they weren't shared broadly with people, you know, have really had another big aha moment for me. You know, we talk a lot here on the podcast about inclusion and helping people feel, you know, comfortable being themselves and, and sharing who they are. And realistically, you know, the residential schools and the, the entire effort was directly in opposition to this. Right? You know, I've read articles about, you know, the, the consequences of speaking, you know, your language versus the English language. And, you know, I can imagine how that gets embroiled in your parents' heads to where they don't teach you the language and they, they have a hesitance to share culture and ceremony it hurts the heart to think that a country like ours that takes so much pride on our diversity has failed to acknowledge some of the history and the damage that was done in getting to where we are today. And, and I hope by sharing a bit of, you know, your story, your family story, 
and the tangled web that residential schools are right at the center of, you know, maybe we can help one people like me who are outside of it understand a little bit better. And two, let some people see what your path has been like and, and where you've gone and the challenges you've faced, even when people didn't realize you were facing them. I was listening while you described the numbness that your dad showed during the Truth and Reconciliation events in Edmonton. And it sort of reminded me, I mean, it's something most people probably don't realize. I learned that you were more likely to survive World War II as a Canadian soldier than you were as a child in a residential school. Wow. And that creates a numbness like going to war, right? Yeah. That lingers, right? That lingers in, in your heart. And yeah, well, it was, it was more than just a brush with residential school. You were there for three nights and chose to leave. And that was, I mean, at 13 years old, most kids aren't challenged to take on those kind of decisions. Is that sort of a turning point from a character and a, your resolve, a personal resolve standpoint? I knew the chaos because of residential schools and my parents' marriage being, uh, they were both survivors of residential schools. Them coming together and having a healthy marriage was impossible. Of course, right? Because, you know, you're, you're dealing with wounded, broken people. So I knew that the family, quote unquote, I was raised in, there was something wrong. I knew it. And my parents didn't talk about residential school to me. And they didn't talk. They didn't. We didn't do ceremony because um, my mom's side practiced First Nations ceremonies. My dad's side were strong Catholics. So I had these two parents who... They came from different different backgrounds. They didn't uh, agree on, on, on ceremony, on culture. They both spoke fluent Cree, but they didn't teach us because they were taught to be ashamed of culture, ceremony, language. My mom and dad talk about uh, the Indian agent coming to the reserve in the 1950s and how they would have to clean themselves up because the Indian agent was coming. And so they all have clean hair and be washed and clean. One they've shared with me that um, they weren't allowed to leave the reserve. They'd have to get a, a pass to leave the reserve. This is my parents now. This ain't my grandparents. This is raw stuff. And that they, we weren't allowed to do ceremony, sing prayer dance, and that some of the men would tell the Indian agent that they were going to go hunting but really, the men went out and did ceremony. So that's how we we were able to keep our our ceremonies alive today, because we kept it on the underground. So Ruby, for for me and you know people listening, what is the Indian agent like a police like a policing of behaviors? Is that he was a federal government like a warden, so he'd have an office on the reserve. And he would give rations like flour. He'd give food to the to the people, to the, right. to, the, to, the, to the to the to the Indians. That, that's that's what we were called at the time, the Indians. He would give us rations and food and kind of monitor us, make sure we weren't, make sure we were being good. Wow. Well, thankful that people were able to find a way to continue to keep some level of culture alive. 
with the level of resistance. I mean, anyone who's listening, if you haven't gone and done some reading on some of the outputs from the truth and reconciliation work, steal yourself because it is it is painful to read, but it is also important to read because I think you start to wrap your head around the fact that, you know, maybe it wasn't what you may have learned in school. And as Ruby, you know, as you, as you indicate, this isn't generations ago. I mean, the last residential school closed in 1997. We are talking pretty current events and we're not at a place where we have had the time to heal and, you know, there's been a lot of damage done. So Ruby, as you've spent much of your life being, I think the words you used, bridging between your cultural heritage and your background and the spiritual warrior inside of you with those of us in sort of mainstream industry and and living in the city, don't know the word to use, but that sort of colonial side of the fence. I'd be curious to hear a bit of your thoughts on how our industry, how leaders out there can be helpful, right? Whether it's you know, in individual behaviors or how people behave within their groups or lead their groups or create an environment that allows people to be themselves and excel. I've been asked this a lot over my career because I've done a lot of Indigenous awareness training to industry and corporate culture. And I said, uh, said, what can we do to help? And I said, there's over 600 First Nations communities in Canada. I said, humble yourself, go visit them. There's that. But also, I think even becoming conscious, because I'm conscious of oppression and intergenerational trauma from the abuse of power, because I researched and studied it so much, I'm aware and my mom and dad and my siblings, my brother and sisters, they all still live on the reserve. And I, so I always go home. And when I go home to the res, I, I feel the oppression still. This is my family. I'm grassroots. But when I go home and I'm, and I'm in that too, when we interact with each other, I'm conscious to empower, to speak positive, to not perpetuate the oppression that's already there in the community. Like I said, for myself, I've, I've had to become conscious not to perpetuate negativity. If I'm going to be a change agent, I have to be inclusive. So when I, I used to run Yelberta Indigenous Construction Career Center, which I helped launch with the help of engineer colleagues, and I hired a non-Indigenous person, and I got a lot of backlash from the Indigenous community for hiring a non-Indigenous fella who who was amazing and awesome. And I said, well, if I want inclusion, I have to be inclusive. And and besides, he, he knew the history. He understood the trauma. He's not there to oppress. He's there to empower. So I guess it's equality when we talk about, when we talk about diversity, inclusion, and equality. It's Walking your talk and, and doing the same and treating other, others how you want to be treated. And like I said, in because I've worked in mainstream most of my career, I've experienced racism. I know it's racism when I see it or when I feel it. 
it's all about being a, a good human, I think. I love that. There are a lot of things that we learn as children on a playground that if we just paid attention to those as we got older, society would be a lot better, right? Treating others the way you expect to be treated, that type of thing. You know, I'll, I'll admit it, right? I mean, I'm a, I'm a white guy who grew up in a place that had a lot of racial tension with our First Nations folks from around the area. And, you know, I, I was oblivious to any of this current history. I feel like we learn something new every day, which puts us in this position now where, you know, we should all feel some level of responsibility because it's someone else is dealing with challenges today doesn't mean you won't tomorrow or things won't be different. And that behavior of bringing to the table what you would expect to be brought there for yourself, I think is pretty important as a leader. But it's not always easy every day, is it? You, you've got to, like you said, be very conscious of your interactions and and the decisions that you make, the way you engage with people, you know, and creating that space where people feel comfortable. And some people, you know, I feel like you and I might be more comfortable having a conversation in a room with a group of people than others are. And that doesn't mean they don't have something to say or something valuable to add. And, you know, particularly if there's been trauma in history, like the way you were describing, even, you know, in multi-generational sense, how can we create a place where, one, people feel safe enough to, to be themselves? And how can we create that environment where folks with a, you know, different life experience can have equal opportunity for success. And I think that will be the continual challenge. In my career working in mainstream, I've always had to work with a white man who was pro-Indigenous, who, who had influence, who wanted to create change. And I would advise him how we're going to do this. And we, and we did. And I know it's not the ideal, but it it's my reality, and I'm grateful for those change makers. I've had great bosses who knew nothing of Indigenous people, but he knew that he wanted to do something because he saw so much um, homelessness and poverty, and he didn't know why. He asked me, well, like, why aren't your people like this? So I had to give him Indigenous 101 on residential schools and colonialism, and he's like, you know, he was like, Wow. And I brought him to the communities. And at the time, we were counting how many Indigenous engineers there were in Alberta. And there were um, 68. But 60 were Métis. Métis people are a result of uh, European men marrying our First Nations women. And because we were matriarchal people, the Métis rebelled. They didn't want to be European because we were matriarchal people, the First Nations, they, they created their own, which is the Métis. There was eight First Nations engineers. However, five were adopted, raised in mainstream. They didn't have no connection to community. So I had made friends with a lot of those engineers. I brought them to um, community and kind of helped them get connected. And there were three grassroots engineers from the reserves. Their parents were teachers. That's why they became engineers. In our communities, we're not exposed to engineers. We're exposed to social workers and teachers. 
people don't want what they don't know. We're only going to strive to be what we're exposed to. Is there opportunity in that, Ruby, for us to change the game from a representation standpoint? You only get interested in the things that you actually see and look interesting to you because you only know what you know so that you don't need me to make change. And so that, you know, the next generation of a pega is much more balanced relative to what real society looks like, not just what city society looks like. This is where it's hard because our reserves are funded from the federal government. And on our reserves, you get 5,000 to educate a child. Off reserve here in Edmonton, you get 11,000 to educate a child. And so we're not getting quality education on reserve. We don't get sufficient funding from the federal government who we signed treaty with. We don't get sufficient funding to, to fix all these systemic issues that the rest of mainstream is not aware of. When we're chasing projects or when we're saying, how can we make a difference? How can we help? It's not up to you. It's up to the federal government to meet their fiduciary responsibility and their agreements that we made when we signed treaty with the reserves so that our reserves don't live in third world conditions. In my reserve, the, the water's deplorable. It's terrible. When my children go home to the reserve to visit my parents, they're like, they don't even like to shower. They don't even drink the water. They're disgusted because the water is so horrible. And just to clarify for everybody, we are talking about Canada here. We're not talking about, you know, a small location in the middle of North Africa. We're talking about, you know, central Alberta, which in history has been one of our most prosperous provinces. And this isn't a one reserve problem either, is it, Ruby? No, it, it happens all across Canada. And I see it like when I go home and I and I see the water and, and I look at my parents' teeth and I just feel like I'm like, this is the reality. So I walk in two worlds, right? I'm trying to help build these communities, but I also have to clean up my own backyard and help my family, you know, shift their thinking. But but they're not going to leave the res. And a lot of people, a lot of non-Indigenous people ask me, how come they won't leave the res? Because that's all we have left, that we're not going to leave the reserves. There's a pride in home, right? I think it's very interesting for me to compare and contrast the words that I read in newspapers and headlines about, you know, reconciliation and commitments around funding and other things. And then, you know, to hear more of the on the ground sort of feedback. And that loop isn't complete to me. It doesn't, most people probably don't consider that you could go, you know, what, an hour outside of Edmonton and be in a community full of people that, you know, reflect our society, but don't have clean drinking water, are, I don't know, a way to describe it, Ruby, other than repressed. Yep. I'm I'm going through a bit of a uh, an eye opening on my end of things. The more and more that I learn, 
I've tried to put some real energy into learning more and trying to think about, you know, how we have a positive impact. Because I, I hear you on, you know, the federal government's got to do its job. What I'm wondering is, you know, for all of us individuals out there that care and are going to spend some time, you know, learning more, getting more exposed to what the reality is rather than perception or headlines or clickbait type of things. I picture all of us as leaders in society. So from a leadership standpoint, count me in as one of those people that wants to help but doesn't quite know how to do it. I'd love a little bit of advice on even if it's starting small. We talk a lot here about starting small, Ruby. So, you know, starting small and taking a little step and then getting to the next phase and taking a little step further. And I mean, there's a piece of me that wonders whether it's not good for all of us to remind ourselves what we learned on those playgrounds and get used to practicing it as you encounter people in stores, in the airport, wherever you encounter people, you know, that's a baby step, right? Treat people the way you would want to be treated. But where do we go from there? Education. Like Maurice Sinclair said, he said it was education that got us here. It's education that's going to get us out. And reading about the call to action, learning about residential school and the historical intergenerational trauma as a result of those schools, learning about the Indian Act, about the reserve life. I remember I took one of my former non-Indigenous colleagues to the reserve and he saw one of the chiefs give money to his band members. And I and I told him, I said, that must look like he's buying boats. I said, but it's not. I said, we're collective people. We're taught to share. We're taught to give. We're taught to be humble. We're taught to help and always like be kind. We're not taught to hoard. We're taught to always give, give, give. That's one thing that I admire about our chiefs and our and our elders and the knowledge keepers that I've got to know is that they're always giving. We're taught to sacrifice until we're depleted. It's part of our culture. It's part of who we are. I'm sitting here with the thought rolling around in my mind that there is a wonderful trait in people that are willing to give for the community and look after each other and demonstrate caring. And it certainly appears to me as though, you know, the amount of sacrifice that Canada's Indigenous people have have had to endure is far more than they ever should have been asked to sacrifice as part of the development of this country. I hope that, you know, we all learn a little bit from that community behavior and those approaches, right? You know, that there's something to be said in taking on those kind of caring behaviors in everything that we do so that we don't end up in a scenario like was created with the residential school system that is created with, you know, oppression around the world, depending on cultural, religious, racial type of stereotypes. 
I think there's something that we can all take away from that, you know, and it's a bit of a macro lesson that we can each take on board individually, I think. It's unfortunate that most of the time when we learn big lessons, it involves something horrible happening for us to have our eyes open. Crisis equals opportunity. Agreed. It's on us to ensure that not unlike something we talked about a year ago, you know, what we're experiencing now from an eye-opening standpoint for many of us across the country is hopefully not a moment, but actually have it be a shift in the way we approach our behaviors within business, society, life, because it really does radiate through the entirety of society. And, and, you know, I'll admit ignorance around the residential school system and certainly not understanding the level of damage and trauma that has been done. And, and in particular, also not understanding that this wasn't something that took place, you know, back in the the 1920s, this is something that was taking place, you know, while I was in university. So there's something here for us to take away and recognize that we can be better and also to have some empathy and be willing to do what you can to help people around you, even if they look a little bit different than you, have a different cultural background, speak a different language, right? I mean, we talk a lot about language diversity inside our company with, you know, big split with French and English, we aren't necessarily sensitive to, you know, other languages because they're not the official languages, I suppose, but it's still something that, you know, from a, an overall standpoint, there's value in history. And I speak from a point of being I'm a bit of a history nerd, right? I like to research history and I like to learn about the things that happened in the past because I think we can we can take things away from that. But history is also littered with injustice and abuse and you always see it as being at arm's reach, right? It's always at least for Canadians, you know, many of us probably looked at it and said, "Well, no, 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 that took place in Nazi Germany." Well, guess what? That took place in Kamloops. That took place in Saskatoon. That took place in Northern Ontario. That took place in Manitoba. That took place all over this country. It hurts to learn that, but that's why we need to learn that. And and it's not something I think that people are sharing widely right now. So we move forward, right? You know, Ruby, I put you through a bit of a, a ringer today you know, diving into your history, looking into, you know, some things that are both personally emotional and probably pretty tough. I certainly feel it. I feel and I see the spiritual warrior that I'm getting to deal with on a more regular basis these days, and I love it. So please don't ever let that go away. It wasn't until 2010 that I embraced our ceremonies and really got immersed in it. I grew up with it. Like I saw the sweet grass. I saw the a smudge because my mom did it. But I never truly needed it and or relied on it until the past 11 years. And I really, truly believe it wasn't until I became spiritual, truly spiritual, that my life started working. 
I like that. I mean, it's, it's sort of embracing your whole self, right? It kind of comes yeah. back to that concept of unless you can bring your whole self, it, you know, you may be leaving something on the field. We were spiritual people, first and foremost, before colonization, before residential schools. Our day-to-day living was ceremony and spirituality. We honored Mother Earth. We, we honored the four aspects, the physical, emotional, spiritual, and mental aspects of ourselves. This is what I've learned, and it's what I've embraced, and it's what's changed my life. For me, living most of my life off-reserve and being exposed to the engineering profession, the ethics and the professionalism that I got to experience working with them, it's kind of elevated me and, again, shifted my consciousness. It changed my life, actually, being exposed to the engineering world. It was something that I, I didn't grow up with. I didn't grow up. I didn't even know what engineers did until I worked at a PEGA. And then I got to meet engineers from all over the world, from different backgrounds. It was like United Nations. They all had identity and a strong sense of identity. And, and it really um made me immerse myself in my own culture and identity. And it, now working at SNC Lavalin, I, I feel I'm again exposed to a broad range of culture, history, identity, and um, diversity. And it shows me that we can all create significant social change. We can alleviate the uneven development if we all just continue to um, work together and understand each other. Take that time to listen and understand each other and then create the space that we can, you know, bring that whole self that you've got to work, right? I'm hopeful that Ruby, you know, in the future we can look back and we will make impact together to the point where you know, as much as I and I know many like me are interested in being great allies and supporters, I look forward to a time when you look around and say, I don't need an ally or someone who is willing to take up this fight because people are listening to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ruby, you're fantastic. I'm just real proud to get to meet you. Thank you. so grateful to Ruby for sharing today. We have a lot to learn if we're to avoid falling into the traps of the past. I would encourage all of you to do some of your own research on Canadian history, and then do some reflective thinking on how you as a leader can challenge your own bias, education, and perception to create a future in your sphere that's inclusive and encouraging of our differences. Those differences are what make us special, and they make us better as a group than we ever could be individually. I'll leave you today with a quote from Chief Dr. Robert Joseph. Our future and the well-being of our children rests with the kind of relationships we build today. Let's all take some time to pay attention and nurture relationships at all levels. It will serve us well. This is The View from where I sit. <laughs>